doing really well. I am more excited than you are for tonight. Oh, you think so? You think so? <laughs> well, I don't know. Which part of London do you live in? Woolwich. Woolwich, the original yeah. place where Arsenal were. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Will you be reporting on the game for anyone? Eh, no, no, I wouldn't be. No, I wouldn't. I'll just be watching it as a punter, I guess. No, I don't do actually much. I don't do a huge amount of uh, sports writing, actually. It's not really... It's not my day job, actually. I, I only write about sport. What's um, on a couple of books and things like that? But yes, it's... This seems to be what pitch publishing is brilliant at, because Yellow Jersey and HarperCollins Press have a lock on all the big guys, your Wilsons, your Balagays, your Glanvilles. But pitch seems to be for... Hobbyist is perhaps too light a word, but I spoke to Felipe uh, de Villes, who is a religion correspondent over in Portugal, and he really wanted to write a book about the Portuguese Cup. So he wrote a parallel Portuguese and English version, gave the English version to Pitch, they've published it, and like you, Christopher Sweeney, although henceforth Chris, right? Yeah, you can, yeah, probably Chris is better. Yeah, probably Chris is better because most of my work's in Chris, so yeah, that's probably better. I'm the same. It's confusing, I guess. Uh, my book is going to be called From Kids to Champions, but we're not here to talk about that just yet uh, because we are inducting Mad Dog Gravison, the last of the modern footballing mavericks by Christopher Sweeney, into the football library. I'm going to put Thomas Gravison's bald, bulging face on your library card. It's an honour. It's yeah. an honour. Because some some people get Glanville or Hunter Davis um, or Jonathan Wilson, but you get Gravison. Uh, born in Denmark, uh, the unicorn, according to various Danes. Uh, but before we talk about Gravison, it's your second book. Your first one came out in 2017. I'm going to go, go for Bultjens. Bult, John Bultjens. Uh, just, just on the silent, uh, silent T, so uh, Bultjens. Bultjens. Bulchins. Is he competing in the Olympics? No, he's not. He no longer uh, competes, but uh, as far as I'm aware, he'll probably have some riders that ride for him because he's in charge of the Harrow uh, bike team. Uh, he's the global ambassador. He designs a lot of the bikes. He comes up with the ideas. And I know he signs a lot of the riders. So he'll probably have riders that technically work for him um, at the Olympics. It's very interesting because the modern Olympics is changing every time. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they bring back portrait painting into the Olympics because they used to be the artistic <laughs> Olympics. Uh, but we're, yeah, we're yeah. talking on the 7th of July, blah, blah, is it coming home? Probably. Um, and w- what brilliant news for the politicians. Although you've said that the real winner of the Euros, Scotland. Well, yeah, I don't know about that, but uh, you know, I suppose uh, I suppose we had a bit of uh, it was it was nice for us to be back, I guess. Um, as you can hear from my accent, I, I am from Glasgow, so it was nice for us to be back after twenty three years. We weren't too good on the on the park, but uh, I suppose it was nice to be part of it. But uh, yeah, we let ourselves down. But you know, like I say, it's been uh, a long time since we're actually there. I, w- I was actually at the nineteen ninety six uh, games. I actually went to the game at Wembley as a teenager. I and went did- down with my. Yeah, I was there behind the goal when uh, Yuri Geller moved uh, the ball. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know about Yuri Geller at that point. I was I was too busy watching Gary McAllister as he ran up and uh, we were all celebrating before he scored, thinking it was a done thing. And of course he didn't. And then Paul Gascoigne did what he did. So uh, yeah, quite interesting. Yeah. Well, I don't know if Gary Mack is a maverick. He's helping Steven Gerrard revolutionise new co-Rangers FC. Um, but Paul Gascoigne's certainly a maverick. What I was going to put to you before uh, anything else is Bentner 
or Gravison? Who would you rather live with? Uh, oh, definitely Thomas Gravison. Definitely, definitely, definitely. Um, I can't see any reason to live with uh, Bentner. I, I mean, I think Thomas Gravison, I, I think the thing about Thomas is that he's um, authentic and he's not trying to be someone else or trying to change or... I think a lot of footballers, and I think Bentner, I've not read his book, but as far as the, the pit of it, I have seen, you know, it's all about a tale of what could have happened. Why did I make these choices? And I regret this. But Thomas actually doesn't regret his life. He'll he regret it the end. Yeah, he still lives it to the full. He did what he did. And I know a lot of people maybe, you know, have comments to make about him or things they, they, they perceive about him. But, you know, he did go to that Madrid team of the Galacticos. He played quite a number of first team games over about two years. So, yeah. I would much rather live with Thomas. That was the big WTF moment of modern football. Real Madrid, who had Sergio Ramos, Rubinho, Zidane, Raul, Ronaldo, Roberto Carlos, Jonathan Woodgate and David Beckham. But they already had one maverick. So riddle me this. How do you get Cassano and Gravison in the same first eleven? I think that was uh, that was obviously a choice for uh, you know uh, for, for the managers, but I mean Thomas did play quite a fair bit. I mean you know that's something I, I do write in the book because I I think obviously there's a perception in British football, like you say, it was a surprising move for him to go from you know uh, Everton to Real Madrid. But I mean he he actually plays um, quite a bit in the first team, and there's a, there's been a change of coaches. I, th- I think he's there for three managers yep. um, ac- across his time, and each one brings him back into the team, you know. He fights for his place, he, he's proud to play there. He doesn't want to leave, um, but there's, there's obviously that famous uh, spat with Robinho at training and uh, Fabio Capello being the ultimate disciplinarian, which I think most of us in British football have discovered when he went to manage uh, England, you know. No, no tomato ketchup. Uh, Thomas was not a kind of guy that was going to was gonna work with him, so he left Real Madrid. But, you know, I think he made his mark there, so I think he's harshly judged in a, in, a, in, a lot, in a lot of areas. Yeah, well, compared to the person he was playing beside, who was the richest player in the world, and I wonder if he taught the young Sergio Ramos, who's about to move to Paris to play for Qatar, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, did you get anything from the press that you read? Because, of course, Real Madrid are one of the most written-about brands in the world. So did you get anything from AS or Marca about what Zidane and Raul thought of Gravison? I spoke to someone in every dressing that Thomas was in. Um, so the, the person who spoke to me from the Madrid dressing room isn't quoted, but they, they, did, t- they did speak to me. Um, so I, I do know what the opinion of him at the, at the club was. Um, and, you know, like I say, obviously from the other media outlets and also some Spanish media outlets actually contacted me after the book came out and one wanted to do a, a documentary with Thomas and sort of sit down with him and, you Good know, night. sort of... So I pick apart my book, you know, with Thomas, but um, you know he, did, he didn't want to do that. Um, I think he's actually probably got a better reputation in Spain than he, than, than he does in my own uh, country of Scotland, um, considering you know the level of football was much lower in Scotland. But I think he's actually thought of and respected a lot more in Madrid than he is in Glasgow. Oh, that would be very interesting, and I look forward to speaking to some Madrid fans. Uh, in the next few weeks, he has a big Scottish connection. Archie Knox said he had more good than bad about him and here's a quiz question which Everton manager signed Thomas Gravison I should know that um, I'm assuming it is Walter Smith no it's Walter Smith it's Correct. A you see you, you yes, underestimated yes. yourself 2000 Walter Smith it was just before Davy Moyes came in 
And I've just yeah. read, I've read a couple of things in the last few weeks. I've read a book on Bob Dylan interviews, Dylan on Dylan. And I've read okay. Pat Nevin's extraordinary book, The Accidental Footballer. Extraordinary. And I think... I can imagine so. Thomas yeah, I mean, Gravison... Oh, he's phenomenal. Uh, Thomas Gravison falls in between Bob Dylan and Pat Nevin. Maybe there's a bit of the Adrian Doherty's about him. The chap who's... Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that's fair to say. I think the word unique, you know, gets obviously we're all unique in our own mm. ways. So that, you know, so that probably gets thrown around, uh, you know, a left, right, and centre. But I, I think he was just, and that's why the book is titled "The Last of the Modern Football and Mavericks," because I, I do feel as though he's one of these people that, you know, is the last of that sort of mould that maybe will go to the top of football. Because even now, when you look at you know smaller clubs, I don't know, like Everton, for example, are, are, are still a big club, but they're not, a, they're not a, a global super club. You know, a lot of the players will come through academies, and you know they'll, they'll be moulded. They'll speak. They'll, they'll do different things. He was totally not like that, um, and, I, and, I, and I think there'll be very few footballers that probably you know reach the levels he did uh, from the backgrounds that he did. Um, and I think that's. You know, a failure in his cab, I think something you can be proud of. And I, I think it's a shame that we're losing that because, you know, I think characters are uh, are what's so great about football. I mean, most of the Everton fans I spoke to for the book, they all remember him as, as, a, as vibrant. You know, they, they maybe remember other teams being more successful, other players being better or whatever it may be. But I think that's the beauty of sport and football, the characters, the, the memories you give you. And Thomas certainly left them wherever he went. Uh, good or bad. I've written down books like Mad Dog Gravison and I've got well, Pat Nevin's book, which I will never tire of hitting people over the head with. It, it's like my Breaking Bad. It's kind of, you've got to read <laughs> Pat Nevin's book now. Um, <laughs> but the three, the two I've got are Provided You Don't Kiss Me, which is Duncan Hamilton's exegesis on Brian Clough, which is the best book about football, certainly the best book about Clough. And then the other one, which I haven't yet read, but Alan Petullo's book, In Search of Duncan Ferguson... Um, I've read that. Which, I've, read, I've read the Duncan Ferguson one. Yeah, I've read that. Can yeah. you compare and contrast Gravison and Big Dunk? Because they and Dunk does feature. He makes a cameo in Pat Nevin's book because he's coming up and he's just at one friendly game. He's talking to some girls on the side and he he turns to the manager, and goes my toe hurts, and carries on talking to the girls. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that the Duncan Ferguson book came out a couple of years before mine on Gravison because I, I did buy it and I did read it. Um, I've had a few dealings with Alan, but just uh, through, through email and stuff. But anyway, I, I read it because I wanted to read it. It's interesting, you know. It's, it's interesting. I mean, obviously he went to jail and there's, there's he's a bit of a character. And I think the thing with Duncan is that more that I don't know if he was that unconventional, but I think football was changing. You know, I think that he caught that end of where obviously the great. Uh, Dundee United manager Jim McLean who you know ruled a bit like a tyrant um, you know he's dead now so sh- should speak ill of the dead and uh, obviously he was a very very talented manager but he had that personality of really controlling the players and times change you know pl- players were, are, are no longer able to control like that so I think Duncan was kind of straddling two eras of football uh, and I think that probably probably made him you know appear to be this larger life character, whereas I think Thomas was just um, Thomas would have been a, a, a character, and it, no matter what era of football he was playing in, um, if that sort of makes sense. Yeah, but yeah, they are quite similar. I mean, uh, Thomas wasn't involved in my book, and uh, you know, actually writing, he didn't want to be, but I know he has read it because we've now become. I wouldn't say friends, that's, that's far too thing, but acquaintances, and I, I do know that he has read it, and we have had a few conversations about what he thought of it. Ah, uh, which obviously you're not going to spill, and I completely, and I'm sure the listener 
no, no, we can, I can tell you. No, 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 at all, not at all. No, of course not. I'm a, I'm a journalist. It's people, you know, I, I, the last thing you want to do is uh, someone say something and they, they, they don't have But the, the mystery, keep the mystery alive. Yes. It's like watching the mousetrap. I mean, I saw the mousetrap. <laughs> I don't remember who did it at the end, so never mind. Don't spoil the surprise. Yeah. Well, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't answer all the questions, but one thing is he feels it's an accurate representation uh-huh. and he doesn't think that I've portrayed him incorrectly or wrongly or anything like that or the things that I've spoken about and the people I've spoken to. So, yeah, he thought it was a, a decent book, you know, basically. So he didn't dispute riding a motorcycle at 160 miles an hour in flip-flops. He didn't dispute covering foam... Uh, across a swimming pool to turn it into like a massive foam bath when he was at Hamburg. None of, none, no, both no, of those are true. No, 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 he doesn't, no, he doesn't dispute anything. There was no, he, he never disputed any of it. No, absolutely not. He does not dispute any of it. As, as I said, he feels it's a, uh, I wouldn't like to speak for him and he, he's not promoting the book. So I, I'm not saying that Thomas is telling you to go buy the book or anything like that, but he doesn't think it was a, he thinks it was an accurate representation. And no, there was no, there was no, I think he quite liked it to be fair, but there was no, um, disputing anything that happened or, or any of that kind of stuff, not at all. Well, because that's great. We'll talk about the origins of the book in a second. But I was talking to Bart Vlietstra, who's a, a Dutch journalist, and he was really pleased to talk to me about Klaas-Jan Huntelaar, uh, ex of Schalke, ex of Final, ex of Ajax. Gravison comes across a bit like him, quirky in as much that put them in a group of working-class lads in a dressing room and you stand out in the way that Pat Nevin, because he read the New Musical Express and sat in on John Peel's shows, was a bit different. Um, I was listening to the football last night, the Italy-Spain game. It used to be that you had two commentators, say Alan Green and Mike Ingham, doing the comms. Now you've got a commentator and two co-coms doing the colour. It was Chris Sutton and Dion Dublin. Great, but I want to know what's going on. So the point that I'm coming to is... There is a saturation point with ex-pros. There are too many of them, but of course they're trying to stay in an industry which doesn't make them bankrupt. And we know about what happens after footballers stop playing. Gravison has completely undone that. We see some of the World Cup 2002 team still in the media. He isn't. And is that his personality? Did he have... Was it just a job for him, kicking a football? I don't think it was a job from I think it was a, a passion that he loved but I think that everything around it as he becomes more famous particularly particularly when he goes to Madrid because at this point he's dating a Danish porn star um, which obviously you know the media tabloid thing of a footballer going to Real Madrid dating a Swedish uh, sorry a Danish porn star I mean obviously the attention is going to go through the roof um, so he had that and obviously then when he came to Celtic uh, Glasgow being a, a goldfish bowl, famously known as a goldfish bowl, because of such, you know, there's Celtic and Rangers players are almost uh, are, are the highest profile people in Scotland, no matter where they go, what they do, everyone wants to know what they're up to, watch them, take pictures, etc. So I think it was all that around him that made him lose interest in playing football professionally because he just literally stops playing. And as in two Thomas Gravison style, the place to go relax and be quiet and unseen is the bright lights of Las Vegas. Uh, I think I don't think anyone else would go to Las Vegas to chill out, but he does. He moves there. But uh, in the book, when I was when I was speaking to one of his uh, kind of mentors, he just seen Thomas a couple of months ago. This was a few years ago now, but it was a charity game. Um, something in Denmark I I don't know I can't remember exactly the origins of it it was a charity game and Thomas was playing and he said Thomas had been training for six months uh, you know to 
to get in shape for the game and he, he almost came out in sort of prime condition so he was very competitive precise about his preparation and being the best he can so it wasn't that he didn't want to do it I think it was the other stuff weighed him down but there was still that love for football um, and money I don't think is important to him um, he's now very wealthy um, as we sort of hint at in the book and the reasons why that may be so, and he's probably had more money outside of football than he did inside football, ironically enough. But he's not someone driven by money. But I guess it's easy to say that when you're a multimillionaire. Yeah, I suppose um, the money is a byproduct yeah. of winning. I know Teddy Sheringham has gone into poker as well. I don't know what um, Graveson plays. Does he have a favourite game? Well, well, yeah, um, well, he does play poker, but I mean, the money may not all have come from that. You know, there's, there's other investments he was involved in and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's a figure banded about of about 100 million. Um, that's how much he's made. But whether he, he, he won't confirm or deny that or talk about his wealth, he's really no interest. I mean, that's something he would have no interest in talking about how much money is he's got and things like that. Is that not a Scandinavian thing? I know in Sweden they have the Antilor, which is tall poppy syndrome. In Denmark, Bentner is basically laughed at. Because he says, oh, I'm the best, I'm going to be the best player. And he clearly isn't, because he made all these wrong decisions. Um, and we're looking at, tonight, Denmark's eleven. It much like Liverpool's, there's no star there. Of course, it was Ericsson. But Ericsson's a humble lad. Yeah, I would say that, I would say that, I would say that uh, Thomas sort of comes from that sort of Danish... Um... You know, the ones I spoke to, I mean, ironically enough, tonight uh, for Denmark, the assistant coach is Morten Vikorst, and Vikorst was a teammate of uh, Gravison in the national team, and Vikorst, kindly enough, uh, gave me his time to talk about Thomas and the memories of playing with him for Denmark. So, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a wee line there to the book tonight, uh, strangely. Um, yeah, no, I, I think he did have that kind of Danish persona. I mean, his, his, his feet were on the ground. Um, but like I say, I think football was something he did. Um, I think his personality, like, I mean, the, the, I talk in the book how, how when he's almost in the breakthrough of going to Hamburg, he's still looking for a part-time job working in a car, spare car park uh, dealer yeah. because he's bored in the afternoon after training. Um, and like you said, you mentioned the motorbike. He uses that to go back to Denmark after training when he's at Hamburg because he's nothing to do. Of course, he's not far, um, so, yeah. Obviously, it's probably not commutable uh, overnight on a on a on a motorbike in your in your flip flops, as you say. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, I, I think he was someone that the, the football was something he loved doing, um, but he wasn't doing it for the fame or the glamour or the money. Um, he was just quite a humble guy. That was his job. So I, I guess, like anyone, if you've got spare time, you, you struggle to fill it. So I think that's probably why he got up to all these sort of maybe sometimes unusual things or. You know, that's why he was so good at, like, Call of Duty. He was so good at pool. There was things like that where, you know, he would take up something and always become obsessive with it. And oh, well, that's very Gascoigne. That, but... That's exactly what Gascoigne did. Yeah, it's exactly. It's that sort of thing where he takes up something and he becomes very good at it. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's why the poker or the investing, he makes so much money in Las Vegas because he's very successful. He's very he's very into things, you know. Um, so, yeah, there's there's sort of shades of that. And I think probably just talking about Bentner, as you mentioned, I think he's probably the polar opposite of, of Bentner. You know, although they're Danish, I think, you know, they're, he's both, they're both the polar opposite of each other where one's sort of proclaiming to be this and that and the other one's not. But... When you look at the achievements on paper, one's probably maximised what they had and, and one probably hasn't. Yes, and to that end, great footballer. I was too young, so I didn't... This was the day when they had two games on on at weekends and I wasn't allowed up for match of the day. So I didn't see that much Thomas Gravison. But I was surprised that his first Everton goal came against... I don't know, is it, is it a European game? Am I, am I right in saying it's a European game, no? The first one, that, so Everton put together a short three-minute montage 
of his goals. A couple were penalties. There was a great free kick from inside the box. But his first goal at Goodison Park was through the legs of Fabian Barthez. It was a really composed finish. And And at this time, he was playing football for Denmark. He famously played at the... He was selected for the World Cup squad in 2002. Whom did Denmark lose to in the round of 16 at the 2002 World Cup? Uh, England, no? Correct. So I'm sure that everyone now knows because we're talking on the day. But as we're speaking, the omen that three first-half goals for England helped defeat uh, Denmark 3-0 out in East Asia. I think Thomas may have been at fault for one of those goals. I think, I think, am I right in saying Paul Scholes may have scored? Yep. I think Thomas should be picking him up. I think Thomas, um, I think if you watch the clip back, I think you can see he sort of, he sort of dropped his man at one point and Scholes has got a bit of space. But yeah, so maybe we could blame Thomas for the third goal. Yeah, but at that point, much like with the Ukraine game last weekend, Ukraine was shocking. Unfortunately, if Denmark lose, then all the talk will be, well, they're losing their playmaker. Although Hoiberg is fine and they've got a couple of other good guys. I don't ask for predictions. And in any case, this will go out weeks later. England are the favourites tonight, but Denmark are a very, very good side. And it's that team, well, two things, team ethic and a lack of a star. Ronaldo seems to bring Portugal down a level, much like Zlatan brings down Sweden. And I put to you, Christopher Sweeney, comma, music journalist, that this is the result of the mono dressing room. Wherever you go in um, popular music, you get a sound that is not quite R&B, not quite rock, not quite pop. You get the mono genre. Whether you go to Paris, Madrid, Rome, London, Chelsea, Manchester, it's a similar dressing room of foreigners and a couple of local lads who know the league and know and can teach the foreigners the style of football. So is that not indicative of why a character like Thomas Gravison cannot work in today's dressing room? Because you've got the mono genre, the mono dressing room converging towards being a team player, being a kind of cog in Guardiola slash Tuchel slash Pochettino's master plan. Yeah, I mean, I think you're, I think you're definitely right there. I, I mean, I think if you even look at the culture of where, uh, if you look at Thomas, you know, where he played Hamburg... Um, Liverpool and Glasgow, all three kind of working class sort of cities, you know, ports, that kind of thing. Quite, quite humble. Well, maybe not humble, but you know, quite working class, feet on the ground type places. Obviously, Madrid is is, is the outlier there. So yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think that he would struggle today. I don't think you'd see a player like him because I think the academy system would either. Uh, sort of break him spiritually or would would mould out or kind of hammer out all those kind of imperfections or perceived imperfections to turn him into this footballer that we see now where you know a lot of footballers are nice guys but you know a lot of times are they're quite boring one dimensional or they choose to show that they're one dimensional and boring whereas he never really played that game he was just who he was and I think yeah I, I think he would struggle to come through today I don't think he would exist and if he did I don't think he'd get to the levels he did maybe he would end up in the championship maybe league one but I don't think he'd get a big team uh, paying the kind of money and giving him that platform and, and that's what he did best when he had a platform where he was supported and that's why Everton were I think it was Everton were really very you know very good I mean you look at the results since I don't think they've ever been higher than they were with him and the team yeah. uh, and, and he wasn't exactly surrounded by you know superstars um, he, he he was actually better when, he, when the, the season after the, the, the season he did for qualifying the Champions League 2004 when Rooney had already left it was Thomas it was the fulcrum it wasn't Rooney it is interesting to note that and you, you do say 
Well, you've given a couple of other interviews that are available online. To, to promote this book, Mad Dog Gravis and the Laughter of the Modern Footballing Mavericks, Wayne Rooney, not a maverick, a family man with four children, captain of England, England's record goalscorer. But this Everton team of the 2000s, made in Davy Moyes' image, and Moyes took over from Walter Smith. So that Everton side, who was the star of that era, if it wasn't Gravison? Who was scoring all the goals? Was a star. I think. I think that's what worked for him. I mean, yeah, you, you know, you had guys at the battle, like you know, like David Weir, um, who another was, Scott. You know, yeah, another Scott. There was there was a lot of Scots at that time, um, but you know, there, I mean, there was other people at like Lee Carsley playing there, Kevin Coban. Um, you know, you had these type of players, but there was no one I would say that was a star. Um, there was a, the the guy Stephen Pina, South yeah. African winger, was there. Um, but yeah, like I say, I don't think there was anyone. I mean, obviously Wayne Rooney. For the few years that he was around, he was the star. All the attention was on Wayne Rooney, but the results. When Rooney, when if you look at it so closely, which I, which I did to probably degree that nobody, no, no one unless you're an Everton fanatic would. That when you actually see when Rooney's not in the team, it's better for Gravison because he needed uh, latitude. He can't stick to a position, so he needs latitude, and you need to let him go out there and, and sort of express himself. Right, yeah, exactly. I mean, actually, Gascoigne was there as well at Everton alongside Thomas Gravis, and they were, they were both there. Uh, they were both there at the same time. Oh, um, yeah. Not a huge crossover, but they were both there at, uh, roughly uh, around the same time. And there's some, and there's also some great stuff with um, you know some of the people I spoke to after the book because I went down to Everton and did some stuff with their media um, team and I think some of the stories about like you know Thomas taking Wayne Rooney out driving when he was 14 and stuff like that, letting, letting Wayne Rooney drive his car. But uh, I don't want to get Wayne Rooney into any trouble that he's. Uh, any more trouble than he's not in already. So, yes. uh, but we'll, we'll we'll say that's allegedly. But that's what I was. Oh, hugely sort of allegedly. There's no supporting yes. evidence. It's just hearsay, <laughs> and Wayne Rooney will get a right to reply. Although, isn't his spouse in court this month? There's more of that with with. Oh Becky yeah, Rindy. I think that's all. Uh, uh, Wagatha Christie, as it Wagatha Christie, yeah. yes. Yeah, that's, that is... all, that's all going on. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Kevin Kilben, uh-huh. who was talking about how Thomas Gravison, bald head, bulging eyes, Danish international, couldn't tackle. No, he, he, I mean, he wasn't... I mean, I think that was something that he was a bit kind of... Uh, a bit kind of erratic. I mean... I think the problem is that a lot. I think a lot of times on the pitch, you know, he would, he would get a bit not frustrated, but I think that would build up inside him, and he may react. So that's why his positional sense or some tackles may be wild. He was actually a more skillful player than what people um, give him credit for, and, and I think in the book, well, I know in the book, there's a quote from Tony Hibbert who played at Everton for a long, long time and was by no means uh, Mr. F- he was another one of these guys that was part of the team, but by no means a star. And he, he talks about how that. If you saw natural talent, there was more in Thomas than there was in Wayne Rooney, which is my, not my opinion, uh, the opinion of him. And like I say, what I've tried to do in this book is that I'm not a professional footballer, but the people that do speak all are or, or have experience of it. So I've tried to put people together that have an actual, there's something they say. Um, because I, when I was doing this book, you know, one of the editors was telling me, well, I don't know if this is true or that's true, but I've, I said to him, well, can you play football? Have you played for Real Madrid? Do you, I mean, these people know what they're talking about. You know, if someone says that, I think I think you've got to take it on board. So yeah, Tony Hibbert felt he was a, a more skillful player than Wayne Rooney. And again, Wayne is welcome to come on here because he's a journalist. He writes pieces for the Sunday Times along with 
Johnny Northcroft, but I think he's he's trying to. Oh, Derby stayed up, didn't they? So he's trying to help Derby avoid relegation. That yeah, story, just I think just didn't he? Just yeah. yeah, that story's not going to end well. I think he'll pack it in. But yeah, anything can happen with football. I mean, Denmark might be England tonight, and if we go to penalties, they've got a very very good goalkeeper who learned from the best. 